I went with almost like a subconscious to a semi-conscious death wish that like, again, very naive, but I'm not going to let anybody die on my watch kind of thing. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger, and I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. On this episode, we'll be talking with Akshay Nanavati, author of Furvana. He's got some crazy stories. He's overcome a lot. Drug addiction, PTSD from fighting in the war with Iraq, with the Marines, alcoholism that pushed him to the brink of suicide. But we're not just going to go down that rabbit hole. We'll also discuss how Akshay transitioned his desire for stimulus from addiction to the Marines and now pushing himself to extremes in order to test his limits and why doing so is a useful exercise for us all. We'll also discover why our negative emotions are often our greatest gift and how we can harness that power to grow and do great things, and something called the LMNOP cycle that has helped him and countless others work through their PTSD, anxiety, daily stress, and other things like that to help build new habits in an attempt to rewire the brain. Remember, we always have worksheets for episodes like today, so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of all the key takeaways here from Akshay Nanavati. That link is in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. Now, enjoy this episode with Akshay Nanavati. What got you interested in pushing your comfort zone to the point of, it's not really extremes, because it's not like you're doing insane things, you're not tightrope walking across skyscrapers just to see if you can do it, but it sounds like you came from one addiction to what might be another habit that's obviously way more healthy, which is pushing yourself outside your comfort zone and constantly attacking fear. Is that a fair statement? It definitely is. I went from drugs to another addiction, and only recently have I come to discover that both forms can be a way of running away from yourself. And I started to discover that even those quote-unquote like positive ways of pushing myself, whether it be like rock climbing, cave diving, or skiing across Greenland for a month, it was still in some ways running away from myself. So now I still like to do those things, but I do it from a very different level of consciousness. And I really discovered that by embracing stillness and by channeling it into something greater than just the actions, but figuring out the sort of the sum of those parts and what they mean for who I am and who I want to be. Yeah, I can see that. I can understand this. And I'm not trying to be judgy for the record. I think that there are some people that are wired for addictive behavior, and I think we call those people uh, humans. (laughs) So I think everyone probably has that circuit somewhere. It's just some people, maybe it's less dialed to 11 than others. And some of us just haven't found our addiction yet. I know plenty of people that had trouble getting out of bed and now they're so obsessed with cryptocurrency, they don't even sleep. You know, fill in the blank, trendy hobby. Cryptocurrency just happens to be the addiction du jour of young people who had no passion, but were smart. And so... I do understand that type of wiring, and I wanna just be really clear that I think that we can't really get rid of those patterns. What we are seeking to do and what you have done is instead of being addicted to booze or something else like that, you're now addicted to pushing your comfort zone or finding new experiences because you've gotta fill the pattern. Otherwise, it'll fill itself, and it's gonna fill itself with something easy, which isn't skiing across Greenland for a month. It's going to a liquor store and indulging or buying some other substance. That's the biggest thing I've seen with people who struggle with addiction and I've lost friends to it is that, you know, when you try to come out of it, there's a void. And if you don't fill that void with something, like you said, it's easy to go back to the easy thing, you know, like Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning psychologist, wrote the great book, Thinking Fast and Slow. He says our brains are naturally lazy. And if we don't find that worthy struggle, And we've got to be constantly practicing like the self-awareness of not getting succumbed to instant gratification. And it's something I still have to be very, very present to. And instant gratification shows up in any and all kinds of forms, right? It could be as simple as like waking up first thing to check your email and getting that little dopamine jolt when you see a new email or get a new like on your social media profile, right? So staying present to those little instant gratification jolts of dopamine and rising above that and actually choosing outside of that if that success happens to the intense struggle that requires to make that happen. So really being present to that constantly is essential. How did you find this pattern in yourself? When did this show up? Did it show up in Iraq or Afghanistan? Did it show up after that? Did it show up when you were younger and you just made it through instead? Bring us back in time to when you started to discover this pattern in yourself. Looking back, especially now, that from a young age, I was always kind of this person who wanted to like push myself. When I was young in Singapore, I used to run barefoot on rocks just to test myself and my ability to do it. I used to love my scars. Like it was a battle scar to me. Well, then I moved to Austin, Texas when I was about 13, and I guess I was lost, you know, unsure of who I was, who I wanted to be, and not that I blame my environment and my friends, but I got into a group of people who, you know, we got into drugs pretty heavily, 
And I always say that if I found a group of people who were like mountaineers, I probably would have gotten to mountaineering earlier or something like that, right? But it's okay. I mean, no regrets. And and then I was the first, me and this one other guy were the first two in our group to start doing hard drugs. We went from marijuana and alcohol to much harder stuff like LSD and cocaine. And today he is no longer alive. So when I got out and joined the Marines, that's when I started to find like different ways of pushing myself. And I thrived in the Marines, you know, like it was hard for me to join in because just even going into boot camp, two doctors told me that Marine Corps boot camp would kill me because of a blood disorder I was born with called thalassemia. So I actually had to fight my way into boot camp, but I thrived in it. What is thalassemia? It's a blood disorder. A normal guy is supposed to have like 14 to 16 grams of hemoglobin. I got about like 10 to 12, it varies. And so it's essentially less oxygen flowing through your bloodstream. So two doctors told me that like I wouldn't be able to survive boot camp as a result of it. So I went to another doctor and got a letter of approval from him that took that to the Marines. Yeah, you're like, oh, uh, two out of three doctors say this is a terrible idea, but here's the one doctor (laughs) that agrees that I can make it. I have another note from him that says if I die at boot camp, it's not his fault, but I'm not going to show you that one. (laughs) And he doesn't take any responsibility, sign a waiver for that for sure. (laughs) But I mean, I thrived in it, you know, like I graduated infantry school as the honor graduate. So it was like, when I decided that this is like what I wanted to be, like nothing else was going to stop me. And of course, at the time, I wasn't very fit because I had just come out of a pretty meaningless drug induced lifestyle. But I thrived mentally and grew fitter as a result mentally, and of course, physically. You said earlier that you don't regret getting into drugs first and getting into harder drugs. I mean, do you mean that? I know I'm not trying to call you out on anything. It just seems like a lot of people would regret that. And for obvious reasons that there are many better ways to spend your young adult life than super high or Jones and fiending for some substance. The only reason I can really say that is because if I had found a group of people who let's say were ultra runners or mountain climbers and all the stuff I like to do now, I probably never would have joined the Marines. You know, getting out of a fairly selfish and meaningless existence is what had me get into the Marines. Because in the Marines, you live for the good of the group. The well-being of the group matters way more than your individual self. Beyond, obviously, it's your own challenge and your own pushing yourself. The well-being of the group mattered more than you. So it's one of the things I'm most proud of in my life. And that's why I can truly say I have no regrets. Because in many ways, hitting low points with drugs is what got me into the Marines. Okay, so that makes sense to me. So it's essentially, I don't regret it because it led to the path where I am now, which is where you're feeling happy. And it led to this amazing experience with the Marines that you may or may not have ever had before. So I understand that. I just wanted to put that in context because I think a lot of people say, you know, I have no regrets. And I'm just thinking, you spent 20 years in prison, not you, of course, but other people. And I'm thinking, (laughs) really? You don't regret that? I mean, you kind of missed your whole children's childhood. They don't talk to you. I I would regret that. I I feel like that's a lie. But yeah, you didn't have that type of experience, of course, just to be clear for the audience here, you did not go to prison for 20 years. (laughs) Different story, but I always like to put this in context because I think there's a lot of people that also feel some shame because they go, oh, well, I was hooked on drugs for three years and I regret it a lot. What's wrong with me for feeling bad about that? And I want to separate that from what you're saying because I would assume that if you could do it all over again, you wouldn't be like, okay, step one, let's get into some hard drugs. Step two, get into the military and turn my life around. It's not really a common thread. What got you then to the point where you decided to fix things? Like you went into the military because why? You just decided enough was enough? It was actually watching the movie Black Hawk Down. Have you ever seen that, Jordan? Of course, where a bunch of guys get their butts kicked, unfortunately, because of bad intelligence and bad luck, and it's just really sad. In fact, I feel a little bit disrespectful even phrasing it that way. It's really just a bad, sad story where when I watched it, I just thought, it's not a feel-good war movie where Rambo kills everybody and you're like, yeah, justice. (laughs) You just think, wow, we're wasting tons of human life over there. You must be a different kind of guy. That did not inspire me to go, I gotta get out there too. It is a sad, it's a very intense movie. What really inspired me was the scene in the movie where Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar, the two guys in the chopper in the helicopter, they volunteer to go on the ground to save Mike Durant, one of the pilots of the downed Blackhawk. And they volunteer to go down onto the ground knowing that thousands of armed enemy personnel are heading their way. But they say, we're going to go down to set up a defensive perimeter. They both died. They received the Medal of Honor, which for anybody listening is the highest award for valor in the U.S. military. They received the Medal of Honor posthumously. But like watching that is what triggered something in me. Like what kind of courage would it take for a human being to do that? That was like the epitome of, I think, human greatness of the divinity of man expressed, you know, through this action. And it triggered something in me. Like I still remember actually that day after watching the movie. I went back, my buddy had the book Black Hawk Down. I got the book from him, read the book like in a day, then just started reading book after book on military and combat. 
And it was, I mean, admittedly a very naive perspective on war at the time, but to me, it was that war brings out the best and the worst in humanity. We see people doing awful things, obviously, to our fellow human beings, people like sacrificing their lives for their fellow human beings. And it was fascinating to me, the idea of experiencing humanity at such extremes. I wanted to then say, would I be able to do that and sacrifice myself for something so much? I wanted to experience an environment that would test me in that way. That was what was the inspiration. So after reading a few books, it was almost overnight, said, okay, I'm going to stop doing drugs and decided to join. Initially, I was going to go into the army and go army rangers, which is what in Black Hawk Down, they're army rangers. And I wanted to go Delta, go special forces, all of that. But I wasn't a US citizen at the time, so I couldn't go special forces. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to join the best branch there is. Sorry for anybody listening, but I decided <laughs> it was the Marines. <laughs> Sorry if anybody doesn't agree, but it was the Marines. So I thought I'll go into the Marines and then go special forces down the road once I became a US citizen later on. What makes somebody from another country say, I'm coming to fight for the United States? Because I'm feeling like that dialogue in your head isn't, I got to go fight for America. It's just like, look, I want to go join the Yankees. I'm not from New York, but if I want to do something incredible, I want to use lasers, not muskets. I'm going to the States. Is that kind of the mindset? Or were you a patriot for some reason for the United States? I don't really get that. Yeah, no, I understand. Of course, it's a valid question. And in fact, that was a big battle I had with my parents at the time when they knew that I wanted to enlist. I put them through hell. I was one side getting out of drugs. And now it's like, okay, he's going to war because I enlisted post 9-11. So it was almost inevitable that I would go to war at some point. But I mean, to be very, very honest with you, it wasn't about patriotism. It was about serving like in an institution where you serve for your fellow Marines. And ultimately, like, I know it's kind of cliche, but it's very true is that when you're on the ground, you're not fighting for flag or for country. You're fighting for the people beside you, you know, and that's truly what matters. And to be honest with you, a lot of people who join are joining for those kind of reasons. You know, there's a few who truly want to serve the country, but a lot of my buddies who joined, it was, you know, to challenge or sometimes to get college degree or to like experience that intensity where you're serving with people beside you. So to me, it was that like more than anything. And I knew event inevitably I'll be going to war. And that sends a whole different thing about the politics of the war, because I didn't agree with it, why we should have gone in and all that, you know, knew we lied about it. And in fact, I was a history major at the time. So I also wrote a history thesis on the war. And I had a unique experience from actually like being on the ground versus studying it. But on the ground itself, that it's a very different vibe. What you're fighting for is just the men next to you. And that's really what I wanted to experience. But it was hard for my parents to understand that at the time. Now they're proud of me, but I put them through hell for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm imagining these nice Indian parents living in a really safe place where you can't even chew gum because it might end up on the streets like Singapore <laughs> where they right, yeah. discipline people very strongly and everyone seems like the place where everyone's polite and wealthy. And then you're like, actually, I really want to just go to Somalia with a target painted on my back for America. And they're like, okay, where did we go wrong? <laughs> or just like, no, we'd rather you stay home and do all of these hard drugs that you were doing where we were really <laughs> sad because at least we knew where you were and you weren't getting shot. Where does their head go at this point? It's just from bad to worse with you, Akshay. And they couldn't say like, is he going to end up in a ditch somewhere if he just stays here doing drugs? Because like I said, two of my friends, very close friends are dead today. They were the first few that we started doing hard drugs with. So like that could have easily, easily been me. And it was hard for them to understand, to fathom, to decide, like, how do we deal with this? And uh, they've definitely been through a tougher road than I have. There's no doubt about that. Because even when I was out in Iraq, it's always way harder for the people back home than it is for us out there. Sure. I mean, all they see is the news. And no, that explosion's really far away, mom. No, it's really far away. Don't worry. It's fine. It happens all day. No, that's not what I meant. You know, it's just you just can't win. Right. I just totally can imagine this. And do you think, oh my God, I really hope my kids don't do any of the things that I did and I'm still doing to my parents? I, yeah, that I still do exactly is a valid point. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like karma might come back and hurt me, that my kids are probably going to be a nightmare like I was to my parents. I obviously hope they don't make the mistakes that I do, but I do want them to learn the value of struggle. Because I'll be honest with you, you know, I was having this conversation earlier today with somebody because I had great parents, like I wasn't, you know, abused, traumatized childhood, great parents, went to the best schools, awesome upbringing, all that kind of stuff. But I see so many people when they grow up with a lot, and they get spoiled, and they struggle then existentially, psychologically later on in their lives. And sometimes that later on is as early as like 13 to 14. So I want my kids to learn the value of struggle, like pushing myself in the Marines, struggling, suffering, doing it through outdoor sports, there's so much growth and value in that. And when we try to protect our kids from that, it can lead to disastrous outcomes in the future. You know, I read this quote, I think it was Tim Ferriss, choose the hard path and it'll be an easy life, but choose an easy path and it'll be the hard life or something along those lines. I would want my kids to experience suffering, whether that means like going into the Marines or whether that means like suffering on a regular basis through sports or something, but really learn the value of struggle because it's adversity is one of the greatest gifts we have. And 
I mean, life will hand it to you whether you like it or not. The real value is when you seek it out in service of something. I got a good friend of mine. You may even know him, Joe DeSena. He started Spartan Race. And what he's doing with his kids, okay, I understand he's taking this philosophy and he is just running with it. And if you know Joe, he's not running with it. He's running up a mountain with it, (laughs) with a boulder strapped to his back and and, and a sled in the snow with no shoes on. And what he's doing with his kids He told me randomly, because I was going to go visit him, he goes, actually, I'm moving to, I think, Singapore, actually, or Hong Kong or something. And I said, whoa, why? You know, I thought you liked living on your farm here and everything. He goes, my kids are getting too soft. And I said, well, okay, have them do farm work. He's like, no, no, they already are, but they're getting soft. So he took them to somewhere, Singapore or Hong Kong, I can't remember now, and he got them a live-in kung fu teacher, and they get up at four o'clock in the morning, and they do like three or four hours of kung fu every morning. And they're, I think, eight or 10 years old. I could be wrong on the age, but I'm just like, Joe, you better hope your kids are wired like you, because otherwise they're gonna grow up and people are gonna go, wow, I just read this book about these kids that grew up with this dad, and they got (laughs) run through the ringer, and now they're all mad about it. He's such a good guy that I find that hard to believe that he's going to cause them issues. But it's just the kind of thing where you've got to be wired for this, in my opinion. And this is non-scientific, but I'm thinking if you have kids, how hard are you going to make things with and for them? My other buddy, Ben Greenfield, also an elite athlete, you know, he's got his young guys out bow hunting in the winter. And I'm just thinking, geez, my dad made me work hard, but it was like, I don't care if it's too hot out. Finish cutting the lawn. It wasn't, you know. I don't care if you're cold, you're sleeping in the snow with a bow and arrow and you're not eating until you shoot a rabbit. It's just like a next level complex that I think we can put into people that maybe has a utility plateau at some point, but that's just, again, I'm not a parenting expert and don't have kids. I just wonder what guys like you think about this and whether or not this would have been good for you to do as a kid, whether it would have made you a better person or whether or not this is something you have to decide to do as an adult. I think it can be cultivated at a very, very young age, this desire, the willingness, and ultimately the joy of suffering. There's a great book called Peak by Anders Ericsson. He's kind of the father of the concept of deliberate practice. He was on the show right before the book came out. Great book. We'll link to that episode in the show notes so you can check it out. Oh, sounds good. Okay, yeah, definitely love to check that out. Because, but in the book, he has a chapter where he talks about how do you cultivate like that kind of discipline and mastery that leads to like creating, you know, a Tiger Woods at golf or a Serena Williams at tennis or whatever, like somebody who becomes, you know, a true master at their art. And he says, like, if you build that in at a young age, and as they start seeing these little victories, there becomes joy, like, and they find joy in the growth that happens from it. Because like I said, I mean, if you look at what we are all proud of, right? Like when people ask Professor Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, author of the book Flow, he did a study and he asked people like, what, who do you admire most in the world? And the character traits in these were courage and the ability to overcome adversity. So it's like we admire that in others. We thrive on that in ourselves. And often if you ask people, what are you most proud of? It's some struggle they've gone through. Like they've achieved something meaningful, right? Like as a result of working hard to do it. So I think we are wired to love that struggle. But we take that away from kids at our young age, right? By sheltering the hell out of them. And I see this so much with like affluent family that I have in India, because many of my extended family is extremely, extremely affluent. And the things they are doing to their kids, I'm like, man, you are hurting them in the long run. You are absolutely hurting them. So I think it can be cultivated at a young age. And like you told me these stories about Joe and Ben, and I, I like, I love that. I definitely see myself doing that with them. Like, I think it's a great bonding way. I train with this gym, Jim Jones. They trained the actors from 300. Bobby Maximus, who used to be the general manager there now, but now he started his own thing. He is rated on men's health as one of the 100 fittest people of all time. And he says a family that suffers together stays together. And I love that because I think it's so true. I mean, that's the same thing that I experienced in the Marines, right? The camaraderie, when we suffer together, we go through that misery. So I want to do that with my kids. And I can imagine that Joe's experiencing that right now. And so is Ben as well. I think it's a beautiful way to raise them. And I think they can start to value that struggle. And ultimately, they'll be better off for it. Probably enough parenting advice from two guys with no kids, though, for now. Right. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right? (laughs) You're listening to The Art of Charm with our guest, Akshay Nanavati. So stick around and we'll get right back to the show after these important messages. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating 
Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Thank you for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. To learn more about our sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. For now, let's get back to Jordan and Akshay Nanavati. I had a buddy, actually, who grew up in India, and we met in college. And this guy, nice guy, very intelligent, absolutely useless. I remember him asking me things like, how do I boil water to make this pasta? And I thought, you lazy SOB, you're just trying to trick me into cooking pasta for you. And then I realized he's never physically touched a stove, ever. Eventually, we, you know, we're out drinking one night, as you tend to do in college, and he said something like, Look, I grew up with houseboys that were my own age and younger, and I was instructed to make them do everything because their parents also lived with us and served me and my parents, and I lived with another family that essentially their mission in life was to serve my family and keep me comfortable at all times. And he's like, I didn't realize that wasn't normal. He said he doesn't miss it at all, ironically, but he was, you know, 20 years ago, having such a hard time in the United States, and this is a white guy who is American. He's not a foreign guy who can't drive on the right side of the road. He just had never had to do anything like throw his plate in the sink and wash it and put it back in the dish trainer. And he just was unable to do that. He was just the basics of really easy to do stuff like, hey, you know how to get something off a plate when it's stuck, right? You see the sponge back there? And he's like, I just <laughs> never even noticed that kind of thing. He's never had to even go into the kitchen. It's crazy. I mean, exactly that point. You know, I have family that they have actually a bell in their house that if they're sitting in the living room, they can hit a bell and there'll be like a noise in the kitchen and some dude will come to the kitchen to like answer your call. And like I when I go to their house and I go to their kitchen to get my own water, they're like all weirded out that I walked into the kitchen to get my own water. It's insane. So <laughs> I can yeah. totally understand what your friend experienced. <laughs> yeah. So I can only imagine if people are like, hey, man, you need to solve this complex problem or deal with an uncomfortable situation that can't be remedied with cash or you drive and park your own car. I mean, there were things <laughs> like, hey, Jordan, can you park my car? And I'm thinking, what do I look like, a valet? And he's like, I cannot get it into this space. It's too small. And I walk outside and he's got a good 40 feet of room to parallel park his Land Rover. And I'm just like, wow, you are comically useless in practical sense. But in an interesting way to take this to an extreme, because I think there's plenty of people who are even like me. You know, I grew up in Michigan and sometimes in California, I'll go back to Michigan and my dad goes, what's wrong with you? Because I come out with gloves, a hat a hoodie and he's wearing a flannel shirt and he's like, you are just such a weirdo now, man. You know, what happened to you? It's not cold out. It's only 58. And I'm thinking, I'm going to see my breath, you know, and I'm going to crawl in bed and turn on the heating blanket. <laughs> it's very quick how you can revert to that. So imagine never experiencing it in your entire life, especially emotional stress, especially physical stress and emotional stress put together. So I understand the wiring that you have. I think you just have it dialed to 11 and mine is around four. As a child, I was afraid of Ferris wheels, like literally sitting in a Ferris wheel, which is kind of tame. So I was afraid of everything and kind of built this <laughs> one step at a time. But it's funny, you know what you're saying? I remember in the Marines once we were sitting there like in a swamp somewhere, cold, wet, tired, rainy. And like I was telling my buddies about my life in India. And they were like, wait, so you could be sitting in India with three people serving you right now and you're choosing to be here? <laughs> and like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I'm absolutely choosing to be here because this is so much more valuable. <laughs> but uh, so kind of cultivated though over time. Unbelievable. Yeah, I think they probably had a little bit of trouble relating to that story, but what matters is we're all in the swamp right now, okay? That's what matters. Yeah, I can understand that. Tell us how things really 
got to the bottom for you. I mean, it wasn't just you joined the Marines, your life was different at the end. I mean, you got back out and things took a turn for the worse. So I started doing the outdoor sports and then 2007, I went to Iraq and kind of actually like before that, this is really what led to a lot of the struggling that I went through. Me and this buddy, we became very close and we kept volunteering to go to Iraq together. Because again, I joined, I wanted to go to war. Again, I was very admittedly naive about what the nature of war, but we kept volunteering to go together. Twice the Marines told us we're going to go. Last minute they canceled it. So I had to like go back to school again and all that. But one summer while I was actually vacationing here in India, he ended up going with the unit. He found a unit to go with. I actually still remember while he was training for the unit once, he used to call me and, um, and like kind of mess with me that I didn't volunteer to go with him. And I had a girlfriend at the time. So he used to mess with me. Oh, because you got this girlfriend now, you didn't come with me. And I still remember to this day, Jordan, like I was standing with my girlfriend once and he called and I saw his name on the phone, Jacob Neal. And I didn't answer it because I felt so guilty about not going. And I knew he'd, he'd kind of mess with me about, you know, my girlfriend. And that's why I didn't volunteer. And I was standing there with her. And so I didn't answer the phone. And I never got to talk to him again. Oh, man. And when he died, it tore me up that I didn't go with him because we were the same kind of Marine in the unit. Like we became so close because we were the same kind of Marine. Like on the rifle range, we would compete and I would beat him by like two points, though. On the run, we would compete and I'd beat him by like a few seconds. So when he went to Iraq, he was actually promoted to corporal because he was a good Marine. And as a result, he was in a seat that got hit with an IED. I always felt that if I went there with him, like maybe I could have gotten that promotion because, you know, I would beat him on these little scores and I could have been in his seat so he could have come back home to his fiancée. And that tore me up before I went as well. So I remember when I went, like I went with almost like a subconscious to a semi-conscious death wish that like, again, very naive, but I'm not going to let anybody die on my watch kind of thing. And so I almost like I gave away all my stuff when I went to Iraq, which made it awkward when I came back because then I had to be like, hey, I'm back. I want my stuff back. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) can I have that stereo? Dude, you gave me this for Christmas. No, I gave you that because I thought I was going to die. Exactly. And it's a good stereo. (laughs) So get your own. Right. It definitely made it awkward. It made it hard when I came back because then it was like I knew friends who had done so much more, who'd been shot, who'd been hit with IEDs. Like, what right did I have to come back to be happy, to be alive, really anything? And so I struggled with coming back. But it wasn't until years later that I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder soon after then struggle with alcohol to the point that like after a five day binge, I woke up just thinking, you know what, there's no point going on. And hitting that low moment is what like, I realized that something needed to change. That's when I began years of research, just neuroscience, psychology, spirituality. And it led me on this greater quest to figure out how do we all live more happy and meaningful lives? Because of course, I wasn't the only one suffering in the world. So how do I navigate that, which is what ultimately led me to this concept of fearvana. But it was through that whole process of before the war, then coming back and really struggling with life in the civilian world that led me to some dark places. I can imagine. And I think there's a lot of people listening that say, oh, you went to a war zone and your friend died. Here's this insanely horrible thing that happened to me or that happened to my family. And so you're right. There's always gradients of this types of suffering. And Adam Smith famously wrote of a man of humanity in Europe who would not sleep tonight if he were to lose his little finger tomorrow, but would snore with the most profound security if a hundred million of his Chinese brethren were suddenly swallowed up by an earthquake because he had never seen them. Essentially, your problems are so much more severe because they're your own, it doesn't even matter what's happening elsewhere or to other people. So I completely understand that type of feeling And I think anyone can, because even if we've never hit real adversity, there's somebody right now who's saying, are you kidding me? But I lost my nice new leather wallet and my ID was in there. This is the end of the world today. And they're just as upset in some way as somebody who's feeling deep grief, which is kind of an insane human phenomenon in a way. This type of feeling, do you think the feeling led you to the drinking or do you think, okay, that pattern had been there for so long, you just fell back into it because you got derailed by grief? Yeah, when I stopped drugs, I was still drinking, like he was a college student, partying. After college, I had a corporate job for a year and a half, thrived, did very well. Got out of the corporate job, started a business, it was growing, was doing well. So in some ways, I was a quote unquote functioning alcoholic, right? Like it got much worse after I came back, much worse after the grief. I mean, what finally led me to actually going to the doctor and getting diagnosed with PTSD I was going through some struggles with my wife and not just like in our relationship, but like physically as well. And I knew it wasn't a physical problem. It was a psychological one. So she kind of pushed me saying, let's go address this, you know? And that's when I went to the VA, got diagnosed and had great experience with the VA. Everybody was great, good people. But the way they handled it often led me to drinking more. Like I would leave the VA and then go straight to the liquor store. Finally, when I got out of like, when I, you know, hit that low moment and started discovering this stuff for myself, the psychology and neuroscience, I realized that that wasn't the best way to address these issues. And so it led me on my own search to kind of address it myself. But it was a result of some external problems that I had that kind of pushed me to get 
to kind of diagnose and figure out what the gap is anyway. You put your wife through a lot from the sound of it. Three months after we got married, I went to ski across Greenland for a month where we were dragging this 190-pound sled for 350 miles. And in fact, one year after my crossing, a British explorer died on that very same ice cap in some of the storms that we got caught. Getting into, she just hoped it would get better. <laughs> like, oh, I'm, I'll fix this problem right now. Use ropes. <laughs> yeah, we kind of adjust the line of risk, I guess. But she's seen me into some dark places. I mean, when we were dating too, I came back from a cave once where I was exploring a cave for 12 hours and I got diarrhea for the last four or five hours of the cave, which was ranks up there was one of the most intense, miserable experiences of my life because getting diarrhea is awful. It's draining. It's tiring. But getting it in a cave is much, much worse. <laughs> and she saw the after effect of that, like how done I was, like how drained. And she was just like, OK, I wouldn't I don't really want you to go caving anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, that sounds pretty bad. <laughs> I can't really compete with that. I think one of my worst ones was being so sick that I was hallucinating also with liquids coming out of all ends on a motorcycle in the mountains of Vietnam thinking if I don't spend the next 14 hours riding this motorcycle, I'm going to freeze to death or die on this mountain. Oh, my God. Most likely. So I have no choice but to keep going. And that's what happened. You're maybe one of the few people who can understand this. There was a certain point, probably like eight hours into the 13 hour trip, where I was so weak that I could barely keep my balance and I thought I should just walk the bike down. And I just got this insane second wind where I felt like I could probably just do anything. I'm sure it took a decade off of my lifespan or something probably, but you have this energy reserve where your brain goes, oh, you're in survival mode. Okay, I'm turning off all of this other stuff that I usually do, because I barely remember it. It's a total fog, but I was with another person and he was thinking maybe I should go get help, but it's gonna take so long, we might never find you again. You might be dead by the time we get back. I was with a friend and after that, he just goes, so are you like better now or something? And I remember thinking, no. And the next day he goes, you were so weird yesterday. It was like you were on acid. And I just said, what? We rode down the mountain and I, I was pretty sick. And he's like, no, 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 you were like an alien. It was like, you're just not there. You were not in your body at all. And I never experienced anything like that before or since, thank goodness. I mean, that was one of the most miserable experiences of my life. So you're in search of this worthy struggle, as you put it, but is the lack of a worthy struggle the same thing as not having a purpose or feeling lost in some other way? I'm not sure how many of us wake up and think, I don't have a worthy struggle, so you know, I'm feeling I'm missing something. What's the difference between this? What are these two concepts? You know, we think that, oh, I'd love to do this, and they'll be like, if I do this, I'll be passionate. My life will be filled with joy and happiness and rainbows if I follow this, like my passion, so to speak. But then suddenly it hits you that whatever I'm pursuing is going to be really, really hard. So ultimately, it's not the question about what's these amazing things I desire, but what's the struggle I'm willing to endure to get there? You know, I was working with this kid who just came out of college, working a very successful corporate job, but like hated it, right? But making a lot of money, it was with some like Goldman Sachs or something like that, like amazing job. And then he hated it, but he wanted to start his own thing, but was very confused about what he wanted to do and realized it'd probably be hard. And I remember at one point in the conversation, he said, you mean there's no such thing as a stress-free life? Like, that's exactly what he told me. And I smiled because I said, no, there's not a such a thing as a stress-free life, but that's not a bad thing if you find a worthy stress. So your goal is seeking out the right kind of stress for you. It's what does being a champion look like for you? And ask yourself, what struggle am I willing to endure to get there? What's the level of suffering I'm willing to endure? Because that question will teach you more than asking yourself, oh, what's my passion and should I follow this joy and how can it be all great? Because it won't be all great. It will be hard. But when you actually like engage it consciously, the suffering, the suffering is joy in that. There's gifts in that. There's absolute beauty in that. And that's why I call it the worthy struggle, to have people recognize that it will be a struggle. But that can be your worthy struggle. I understand this. Everybody feels fear. Everybody's got stress or anxiety at some point, and especially in the West slash America these days, we're told a lot of things like, be fearless, don't be scared, don't worry, and if you do worry or you do have stress, and it's like, oh, well, you know, you should go to the doctor because you're not supposed to feel negative emotions. And I think this is destructive because I know people that worry about stuff, and some of the worry is a little unhealthy or un irrational, but they say things like, I have an anxiety disorder. And some of them do, some of these people definitely do. But I think it's destructive because everyone inevitably feels these emotions. And when I go through stressful times, a lot of people say, well, you know, you should go to the doctor. Or, oh, I have some Xanax. And I'm just thinking, I don't think the answer for me worrying about a real life thing is to take some pills and crawl into bed until I just don't care about anything anymore. And I think it can send people into a downward spiral of not only negative self-talk, but negative 
self-reflection. There's something wrong with me. I've got this disorder. I'm not cut out for running my own business because I worry about things in my business. And I've seen this happen in the art of charm when I was first starting, me and AJ and Johnny, and I'd wake up and go, oh no, not another day of this. And I'd be walking to go get some food or something and I'd see a construction worker filling a pothole in the hot sun and I'd think, well, at least he knows that at 5 p.m. he's done and he knows he's getting paid. Maybe that's a job I should look into. And I was really thinking about those types of things all the time. Did you have feelings like this? Is this how these feelings came out? What did these feelings do to you as well? What happened to you? Yeah, I think you put it beautifully, Jordan. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's what I struggled with with the PTSD. You know, like, like you said, these emotions are normal to feel these things. So like, for example, with the PTSD, when I came back, I was very jumpy with loud noises. Oh, that means it's a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. Or the fact that I didn't like crowds. You know, that was a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder or my survivor's guilt. Like all these things were labeled disorder. But what I came to learn is that the symptoms of post-traumatic stress are not indicative of a disorder. You know, my subconscious brain, my amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain, learned to associate loud noises and crowds with death. Inevitably, it was more jumpy with, you know, with these things. It was more vigilant than the average person because emotionally intense experiences get deeply implanted into the implicit memories. There wasn't something wrong with me. It wasn't a disorder. These were just normal symptoms and normal reactions to war. But like exactly what you said is when we label a disorder, when we think there's something wrong for feeling them, it fuels into this downward spiral. And we all see it. It doesn't have to be war, right? Like, I mean, you mentioned even with business. I worked with this one guy once who said, you know, I'm just waiting for the fear to go away so I can quit my job to start my business. And I told him, that's your problem. You're waiting for the fear to go away. It won't. It's natural to be scary. But again, he lived in a world where he sees people say, be fearless or don't be scared. So when he feels fear, he thinks there's something wrong with him. So he's waiting for it to go away to take action. It is such a, such a destructive spiral. That's why I always say, if you hear me say, I'll say I was diagnosed with PTSD. I don't say I have PTSD. Like a subtle distinction, but it's a valuable one because I don't associate that with myself, you know? And now I learned to transform these emotions into something useful. Like even my survivor's guilt, for example. You know, I have a picture of my friend up on my wall that says, this should have been you, earn this life. And my guilt became something of value to me. In fact, only actually two days that I changed the quote on that. And I'm happy to explain what led to the change of quote. But the point in this story is that the guilt was like valuable. It's what helped me finish my book. It's what helped me sober up. It's helped me say that, you know, I've been gifted with this life. And in fact, Jordan, I just found out like six months ago in my 10-year Iraq reunion that my vehicle rolled over an active improvised explosive device and just for some reason happened to not explode. My staff sergeant told me that like just on our 10-year Iraq reunion. And it was crazy to just process that like about my own mortality and recognizing that, you know what, I've truly been gifted this life now. It's on me not to waste it. They just never told you that before. They're like, ah, nobody needs to know we ran over an IED. And then he told you 10 years later. Some other guys in my unit knew, like my staff sergeant, my other very close buddy of mine uh, in Louisiana, like they both knew about it. We were both in the same convoy, like the same three vehicle convoy. And I guess, you know, I never heard about it or never came to know, but they both were like, yeah, man, our vehicles rolled over an active ID and it just happened to not explode. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of crazy. Because another vehicle in our company did get hit with an IED and it did explode. Thankfully, nobody was killed, but it did explode. So it was interesting to me to hear that and process your own mortality and your own place here. You're finding a meaning in that story was uh, valuable for sure. Going back to the idea that you have a picture of your friend on the wall that says this should have been you, that strikes me as something that your wife and parents might not be too crazy about. There's something strange about that that doesn't sound right to me. I would love if you would explain why you would keep something like that that says you should be dead instead of your friend. You're right. My parents especially did not like that. I tried to kind of hide it from him, but they saw it one day and did not like it one bit. <laughs> so I get that. Absolutely. But, you know, to me, it was a recognition that this guilt is not going to go away. You know, like rationally, I get that even if I had gone to war with him, he could have still died. I could have still come back alive. Rationally, I get all of these things. But the guilt that there is people who have suffered more than you, and it's on you to now leverage this gift you've been given, this life you've been given to do something to help the others in the world. And so it was a reminder of that. And, you know, if you stay very much more emotionally connected to your goals, it drives you. It was valuable fuel for me to do that. Literally only like less than a week ago, Jordan, I changed the quote on this thing that says, honor his death, live this life. And what I came to learn through all of this was the guilt got me so far. It became a valuable thing for me to hold on to. Pain is a great motivator for change, right? And often it's the strongest motivator for change. So this guilt was valuable for me to say, okay, you know what? If I'm going to stay on this, like I'm not going to let me drive myself into like a pit of alcohol and kill myself with that. But then like only recently I came to learn that with the guilt still holding on, 
I was struggling to have fun, like in life with people, with enjoying it. Drinking was my way to run away and have fun. But obviously, that's not necessarily the healthiest way is like binge drinking. So when I stopped drinking, I realized that I wasn't able to have fun. And now I've been allowed myself to say, you know what, honor his death, live this life. So it just shifted because I think as we continue to evolve, like some things, some tools, some strategies will get us X place. And then when we evolve to the next phase in our life, which now just having launched this book, I'm now building out whole new things. It's like I'm evolving to the next phase and the guilt got me up to here. But now in order to get there, the next phase, I need to enjoy this process more because ultimately, like I talk about how I want to help others live a happier, more meaningful life. And it's disingenuous or not in alignment if I myself am not truly happy, right? Recognizing that this mental model was no longer of value allowed me to shift it. But the guilt was valuable to the point that it got me to finishing the book into where it did. Hold your horses. We'll be right back with more from Akshay Nanavanti after these brief announcements. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. Your support keeps us on the air. For a list of all the discounts from our amazing sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now for the conclusion of our interview with Akshay Nanavati. I was going to mention that you're here to help other people and it's kind of like, well, but you should have been dead. Well, I don't know if that really matches. <laughs> you're kind of screwing with your branding here, Akshay. Come on. <laughs> I think the value though for anybody's listening is like, some things will serve you at the moment it needs to, but then when you get to the new stage of your evolution, like look at these things. And I think it requires a relentless amount of self-awareness to question your lens of the world, your mental models. So this was a lens that I had viewed that, okay, I need to hold on to my guilt in order to stay sober, in order to work hard. And it got me to a point, but now it was like, okay, let me reframe this lens. And when I changed this, it was literally a result of sitting there. And I remember this deep, intense feeling, just feeling like, hey, I'm glad to be alive. And that might sound like a very simple thing, but for me, like I literally teared up feeling this as I just said, I'm glad to be alive. And that was so powerful for, for me to notice that. So whatever anybody's feeling, use it, leverage it. And when it gets to you to X point, then you will maybe know that, okay, do I need this anymore? And what's the next stage of my evolution? Why do you think that our negative emotions are often our greatest gifts? That was a point that you've made quite a few times in Firvana, and that seems to go along with what we're talking about here, and yet a lot of us are trying to avoid this stuff for good reason. Avoiding it is what causes more problems that we're suffering with because we live in a world that's constantly looking for the easy way out. Collectively, our progress is these new things, the new things that make our life easier and easier. We have instant gratification world, right? But that's not what brings us more joy. We're seeing rise in suicide rates, rise in depression, rise in mental health disorder. Coming back to the story about Joe and helping their kids find that valuable struggle, we discover who we are, you know? Like, I mean, how does confidence, how does self-esteem get built? It's when you achieve a result, you take risks, you push yourself, you do something you've never done before, and then you grow into a new person, you know? So every time you've experienced that stress, whether it be in the gym, like a big part of my salvation has been exercise. My 33rd birthday was a few months ago. I ran 33 miles to celebrate. Suffering, absolutely in that run. But it was beautiful because to me, like that was a far better way to celebrate than like downing 33 shots or whatever it may be, right? Like, so it's in that stress that we find our growth. We find a new version of ourselves, And I think we consistently get reborn the more we push ourselves in that. Recently, I've been exploring faith as well. We tap into our divinity when we're able to rise above our adversity. And we have to seek out that adversity in order to tap into that divinity. How do we cultivate courage? Because it seems like that's really what you're trying to do here. Cultivating courage is doing anything that pushes you out of your comfort zone just far enough to test you, is what we'd said pre-show here. How do we cultivate courage as a skill? Honestly, one of my favorite ways, as I mentioned, it's been my own salvation, is through exercise. Because in exercise, you can push yourself. It's something almost anybody can do everywhere. You can push yourself and you can constantly go through these moments where it becomes a true test of will over fitness. Like you hit a moment where one part of you wants to quit and the other wants to keep fighting. And when you do that, you will rise above yourself to do it. And science has shown they've done these amazing studies where they've pushed athletes like to the point where they're feeling just on the edge of exhaustion, you know, just wanting to die. And they're only using like 30% of their muscle fibers. So our spirit can and our mind can push ourselves far further than what our body can. So cultivating courage is ultimately like, yes, exercise is one way to do it, but really it's anything that pushes you just far enough outside your comfort zone. So I call it like the zone of fearvana, where it's the level of fear and the level of training that coincides. And if you go too far, it paralyzes you. If you don't go far enough, you don't get the growth from it. So even like Anders Ericsson talks about deliberate practice needing to be like pushing you outside your comfort zone to grow. So it can be anything. I mean, as I said, I wasn't this person who skied across ice gaps or, you know, climbed rocks without rope always. I was terrified of Ferris wheels. So whatever your line of risk is, relentlessly become aware of that and push yourself one step at a time. So I call it the action awareness cycle. So you become aware, you choose an action. And when you do, 
You allow yourself that memory to get consolidated into your brain, get implanted into your brain and get the lessons from it to then take new action. And you get to choose your path. That's where your worthy struggle comes into play. You know, it could be like chess. It could be playing movies. I have a friend who's like came from a village in India and now is about to be a grandmaster in chess, you know? And she talks about how she's constantly scared before her game. So she herself was asking me, it's like, how do I get rid of this fear? And I'm like, that's your whole thing. Like you've gotten to the point because you're not getting rid of the fear. Use it, you know? But she does this and she feels it consistently. So that's her worthy struggle. And as a result, it becomes some way to cultivate courage and grow. And she's one step away from becoming a grandmaster. But it could be anything. It could be running marathons, playing chess, writing movies, raising a child, anything. That's what cultivating courage is all about. It's actually making willpower a habit, put it another way. Right, so exercising your will, making that a normal part of your life so that you get to experience the depth of courage that you already have within you because otherwise we just never have to tap into it, in theory. So getting to a place where most of us wants to quit and there's just one little part that wants to fight? Yeah, putting ourselves in those positions and that's why I call making willpower a habit. In fact, Charles Duhigg, the amazing author of the Power of Habit book, says that willpower is the most important keystone habit. The keystone habit is what he says, like it'll essentially it's one habit that then translates to all other areas of your life. So when you build a habit of willpower, it'll shift your financial uh, uh, situation. It'll shift your relationships. Like it's a habit that transcends into all other parts of your life. And again, one of the best ways to engage that willpower is to exercise. Walk up to a good looking woman or man in the bar, right? Like that's scary. <laughs> and uh, do that. Push yourself in that front and, and you'll find a level of growth. You'll make mistakes. We all do. As long as you analyze it, like, because like, for example, like gambling could be a way that, you know, engages that fear response, has excitement to it. But if you exercise awareness into these actions and say, was this action in service of my growth? Was there virtue to this struggle? Then you get to decide if this is an action worth repeating. Like another example, I used to like cut myself when I was a kid in this drug phase. I have scars all over my arm, burn mark on my arm, but there was no virtue in that pain, right? It was almost like a shortcut to pain. Now it's like, I find value in it and I exercise willpower constantly as a habit. If at least once a week, if not more, I'm not doing something that I'm truly afraid of doing, I feel like I'm not growing. So seeking that out and constantly. And that's how I continue to evolve in confidence as well as success, as well as happiness. So this isn't about not feeling the fear or not feeling these emotions as well, because neuroscience has shown that we don't really control what first shows up in the brain. It's gonna be the hardwired instinctual stuff. You're standing on the edge of the cliff. It's normal, you're supposed to feel a little bit of fear. And yet, we all judge our emotions. Some are good, some are bad, some are positive, some are negative. You call this a disease of the mind and you call it second dart syndrome. Can you tell us what that is? Because that sort of leads into the way that we set up our self-talk to be productive or not so much. Yeah, I think this is like the most destructive disease of the mind is second dart syndrome. We don't control what first shows up in our mind. So if I'm standing on the edge of a cliff and I feel fear, it's normal to feel that. You know, if I've built up a pattern that I feel anxiety sitting on a computer to write, the problem was not the anxiety anymore. It's the judging of the anxiety. So when we acknowledge that we don't control most of what happens in our brain, we can allow ourselves to step outside of it and do something with it. So what I mean by second dart syndrome is that Buddha said that we are all stabbed by two darts. The first dart is, let's say I stub my toe against a door. The first dart is the pain in the toe. The second dart is when I say things like, this door is stupid, or why do bad things only happen to me? Why does God hate me? And it fuels into this downward spiral, what I call second dart syndrome. And this is what happens when we judge our emotions. Like another great example of this is my wife and I went climbing once in Arizona and she felt a lot of fear on this like scramble. She, you know, she eventually she pushed through. She was really nervous, but she pushed through. We got to the top, came back down. And then when we came back down, she was really angry at herself. She said, you know, what's wrong with me? Why am I so weak? Why am I such a coward? I felt scared on the climb. And she was like, you didn't feel any fear. You know, like what's wrong with me? So that was the second dart that struck. It wasn't that I was any braver than her. My brain had developed references over time that learned not to associate this scramble with fear. It said, my amygdala, that subconscious brain is saying, this thing is not risky enough. We don't need the fear response to show up. You can just engage your mind. You can be without that fear response. But she didn't have those references, so she felt fear. But she made the fear mean she was weak. And I told her, like, that's your choice. That what you do in the second darts is what will define you. It will shape you, allow you to take action in, in service of the next one. So there's actually a great quote that really summarized this from this book, The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution. He says, man is a machine, but a very peculiar machine. He is a machine which in right circumstances and with right treatment can know that he is a machine. And having fully realized this, he may find the ways to cease to be a machine. And when we recognize that, we accept, I call it the myth of free will. We accept how limited our free will is. Then we regain the ability to have free will and to consciously choose what we do with our circumstances as well as our emotions. So that's what I mean by second art syndrome. And stepping outside of that destructive spiral is what will allow you to embrace the energy of any emotion, find value it, and ultimately channel it into purposeful action.
bordering on the line of what might sound like woo-woo here, but it sounds almost like what we're talking about here is mastering that little space between the stimulus and the response, or at least between the first response and our second response. So I was walking the other day, I was talking on the phone, and I have a neighbor who has a younger son, I think he's, I don't know, 19, and it was dark outside, and I was walking right by the edge of their fence that faces the sidewalk, and their kid sprinted out of the door around the corner of the fence to go get the garbage can, and I jumped up in the air and said, holy shit, or something like that, something along those lines. And then I started laughing, and I said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, man, you startled me. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, my bad, I was just gonna get the garbage. And I started laughing with my friend on the phone at that reaction, and my friend made an interesting observation, which was, he said, oh man, for me, my heart would be racing for like 40 minutes. I always get so startled, and it's, it lasts for so long. And I thought, well, yeah, but I really did have to stop and say, this is not a threat, this is the neighbor. That reaction was actually funny because it is this hardwired fight or flight. And my friend goes, yeah, that's interesting. At least she didn't scream like a little kid or something like that and, and sort of turned it into this place where I could control that. And I was fine five minutes later. And I thought that was an interesting observation on behalf of my friend who said, you okay, is your heart still going? And I said, no, I didn't even notice it after a few minutes because I had managed to in that moment, probably more out of fear of embarrassment than mastery of emotion, I'd manage to reframe it into something else. And I think if we can create a space there or utilize that space there, that second dart response, we can engage in that space and choose what to do with it. You had guilt at one point driving you to the brink of suicide, and it sounds like today it actually creates a, a space where you try to become a better version of yourself, and it sounds like that development is new. Exactly. Same emotion, right? Like I love that quote from Viktor Frankl, who I'm assuming you were referencing in Man's Search for Meaning. He says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our power to choose our response, and in our response lies our growth and our freedom. And what we do in that space is like essentially how we master life, right? Like that shapes our destiny because we all feel these emotions. We all experience life. I mean, the external stimuli as well as this internal automatic stimuli and allowing ourselves to separate ourselves. Like you had this jump, normal response. Now you can say, oh, this means I'm weak, I'm a coward, and all this kind of thing. I'm like, okay, normal response to being startled. Now, cool, right? Now I don't have to define myself by this, but defining ourselves by our emotions and then allowing them to shape ourselves to self-identity, essentially react to it as opposed to being consciously responding to it. So creating that space is invaluable. Like, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to do it. You know, meditation is one of them. Practicing the emotion, allowing yourself, stress inoculation is a great technique. In the Marines, that's what we do, right? Like we train in stress and high stress so that when stress happens, you're ready for it the next time. So training in it, that's what cultivating courage is all about, to come back to that point. It allows you to master the space between those emotions where it can sort of shut down your prefrontal cortex. And when you feel intense fear, that part of your brain essentially gets shut down. Fear happens in that sort of like fight, flight, and other kind of responses that you can consciously choose from. But uh, when you practice it and train in it, then you can be very conscious about how you rapidly respond to the emotion instead of just being reactive to it. You're right, that is Viktor Frankl. Thanks for pointing that out. Sometimes I read and learn so much of this crap that I'll wake up one day and forget where it's from, and I'm like, I'm a genius. And then it's like, <laughs> no, no, that's totally not your work there, Jordan. Slow, slow your roll, son. Sorry to take that away from you, Jordan. You can take credit for it, too. <laughs> look, look, I do need to be put in check on stuff like that, because sometimes I'm just like, man, I got this genius stuff oozing out of my veins, and it's like, no, man, you just read a lot. Calm yourself. You learn, though. Love it. <laughs> yeah. You've got a simple five-step formula based on your neuroscience research to essentially build new habits, rewire the brain in a way. And look, whether or not this is based on hardcore science, I've been working with this a little bit. I'd love to hear you outline this for us before we wrap here, because there's a lot of useful information here, but I want people to walk away with, okay, I'm going to do this next time I feel a crazy emotion coming on. I need a strategy that's in my back pocket. Absolutely. I get it. The five-step formula is LMNOP. I use this all the time, worked with clients with PTSD with this anxiety disorder, and it's really worked powerfully. So the L is label and language. There's a great study that's shown that when you label your emotion, it actually reduces activity in the emotional part of your brain and increases activity in the part of your brain related to focus and awareness, because you're allowing yourself to create that space between the stimulus of the emotion and your response to it. And language is shifting your body language. And I know you and me kind of talked about some of the false research that in sort of Amy Cuddy's research on the power pose. I still think there's value in shifting your body language, like standing tall and just feeling more confident. Label your emotion and shift your body language to something that makes you feel better instead of like slouching. So I had a client who felt severe anxiety when he would sit on a computer. 
And he'd always be like slouched when I saw him on Skype. So he would label his anxiety, sit up a little bit, just feel a little more powerful. The M part is the meaning. This is where you ask yourself, what is the meaning to the external and or the internal stimuli? So like for him, example again, he had made it mean that nobody would want to read his writing. Like it was garbage and nobody would want to read it. But he also made the anxiety mean he was weak. Like there's something wrong with me for feeling anxiety. Why am I feeling anxious just from sitting on a computer? So he made the anxiety mean he was weak. This is coming back to judging the emotions. So our brain's always seeking out meanings to things anyway. A lot of research that has shown this, and it's really interesting how we do that. So M is the meaning. You're becoming conscious of the meaning that you're associating to these emotions as well as external stimuli. N stands for it's not me, it's my brain. Coming back to that myth of free will, our machine-like state that, okay, look, this is not me. This is not who I am. This is my brain stuck in a pattern, but I am not my brain and my brain is not me. So again, we all do this all the time, right? Like I worked with this kid who was diagnosed with depression by some awful therapist. And then she started to define herself by depression. Like every time she feels sad, it's like, oh, it's because I have depression. I am depressed. As opposed to saying something like, my brain goes through a state of sadness from time to time, but I am not my brain and my brain is not me. So that's the end step is not me. Then O is you opt for a new meaning. So you're consciously choosing a new meaning against the external stimuli as well as to the emotion. So in this client's case, he said that, you know, the new meaning is that earlier in his career had worked in the Pentagon and stuff. Okay, I have all the success. People will find value in it. And he also made the anxiety being something useful. Like he reframed his anxiety and said, the only reason I'm feeling anxious is because I care enough about putting something valuable out there. It's the same thing. I felt fear writing my book on fear. And I said that, okay, doing this, actually this process would be like, the fear is good because I care enough about writing a good book and I just want to put garbage out there. And then the final P is purpose and preemptive strikes. So purpose is taking action in line with that purpose. So whatever that worthy struggle is. So in my client's case, it was sitting on to write on the computer for just five minutes. Because in order to build a new habit, in order to create new wiring in the brain, because if you think of everything just like as wiring in the brain, to rewire it, you have to do something differently. And then even if it's just initially just five minutes of writing, that starts to build new neurological pathways in the brain. And then eventually you can increase it to 10 minutes and all that. So it's taking an action. And the preemptive strikes is what I call, it's another term, a psychologist call it implementation intentions as well. But it's preemptively planning ahead of time what you're going to do when an obstacle shows up. So he would write next time that, okay, I know I'm going to feel anxious. I'm going to go through this process. I'm going to write for five minutes. And studies have shown, like with these patients who were diagnosed with hip and knee replacement surgery in Scotland, that by planning ahead of time exactly what they're going to do, like, okay, in the middle of the day, I'm going to walk for 20 steps, or I'm going to take a shower, and writing down in detail what they're going to do, when they're going to do it, those who did that recovered three times faster than those who did not. So preemptive strikes is planning ahead of time for obstacles you know will show up. That you can use anytime in your life as well. Like when I woke up one day with a lot of sleep, I had two client calls and I had a run planned after that. So I knew I'd be really tired after my client calls and want to go to sleep. So I preemptively prepared for my fatigue by putting on my shoes, putting on my running watch, my iPod around my arm. And so when I finished two client calls, I made it as psychologically easy as possible to step out the door. So preemptively prepared for the obstacle of fatigue that I knew would show up. And that five-step process, if you consciously use it, it's invaluable. Look, I apologize. My big takeaway from that was you still have an iPod? What? (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) I love this process. Of course, we're going to throw that in the worksheet for people who are like, wait, oh my God, go back. You don't have to rewind. We have worksheets for each episode and we're going to throw that LMNOP in there as well. Thank you so much, Akshay. There's so much here. There's a lot in the book, of course. We're going to put a lot more in the worksheets. Thanks for having me on the show, man. It was a real pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. Jason, this one was interesting. It reminded me a little bit of the Dean Carnazes type shows where we had the ultra endurance athletes. And of course, also the Cal Newport shows where he talks about as you work towards mastery, passion develops, you know, don't set out to discover this stuff, set out to develop it. I kind of get a little callback of both of those when it comes to this stuff. And of course, he touched upon Susan David as well with some of her emotional research. So this was a, a good fit for AOC after all. Yeah, it definitely was. I'm glad we could uh, make it happen. So I do got to say, though, that I needed some more coffee. That man can talk quickly. Yeah, he talks really fast. He's one of the few guys that I think, wow, you're talking twice as fast as me, and I'm a fast talker. Dang. He's got a lot to do, man. He's got to get it out quick, get back on the road. That's right. That's right. He he goes to extremes, even in the rate of speech. So hopefully, I think a lot of people who normally listen at 2X are like, no, not today. So great big thank you to Akshay Nanavati. The book title is Fearvana. And of course, that'll be linked up in the show notes for this episode. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Akshay on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Tweet at me your number one takeaway from Akshay Nanavati. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram at Jordan Harbinger. Don't forget, we got the worksheets for today's episode so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of all the key takeaways from each guest on the show, and this one is no exception. That link is in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. 
I also want to encourage you to join the AOC challenge. That's at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. And that challenge is about improving your networking skills, your connection skills, inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. It is free. A lot of people don't seem to understand that. The challenge is free. It's a fun way to get the ball rolling, get some forward momentum, and apply the little things you're learning here on the show to your life every day in a way that is scalable so you can actually do it without dedicating 90 minutes of your week to doing it. We'll also send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier in the show, which includes great practical stuff ready to apply right away on things like body language and persuasion, influence and networking, charisma, and nonverbal communication. And of course, everything else that we teach here on the show and at our programs in Los Angeles. This will make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's all at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. And I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. If you can think of anyone who might benefit from the episode you've just heard, please pay us the highest compliment and pay it forward by sharing this episode with that person. It only takes a moment and great ideas are meant to be shared. So share the show with your friends and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.